0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 12th, 2021. It's um, almost noon in California. And as so often on this show, on our daily show, COVID is stealing the headlines. I think the one word to summarize the current situation with COVID is confusion, massive confusion on an informational and an organizational sense. Most of us are still deeply confused about the nature of the plague, when it began, certainly where it began, and above all else, where, if at all, it will end. Headlines today reflect that Uh, Tony Fauci, uh, many of our heroes, uh, although he's not necessarily too popular amongst quite people on the right, are suggesting that booster shots are likely. But um, of course, likely doesn't mean certain. Um, Here in California, there's a lot of confusion about vaccine proof, how you show it, where you show it. Um, One of the interesting things is that much of the common wisdom is that minority communities are underrepresented when it comes to the vaccination rate, but the LA Times headline today suggests that Native Americans actually have the highest COVID uh, uh, rates, which is encouraging in some ways. But other headlines are really confusing, this out of the Washington Post today. Uh, I'm quoting it, a majority of Americans in highly vaccinated counties now live in COVID hotspots. In other words, doesn't matter whether or not you're vaccinated, you're still likely to live in a hotspot. Uh, Some people are so confused, they're sneaking, according to the Post, extra coronavirus shots. Um, They're worrying that the J&J shot isn't enough. We've been through this in some ways, of course, before. This is certainly not the first pandemic, uh, even of the 21st century. The first, of course, was AIDS. And my author today, Emily Bass, uh, is a long-time um, journalist and writer and activist on the AIDS epidemic, uh, has a new book out to end a plague, America's fight to defeat AIDS in Africa, in our COVID-saturated culture. I don't only want to talk about uh, COVID in terms of AIDS, uh, but I I do want to begin on that front. Um, Emily, you end your book with a chapter on COVID and AIDS. In terms of the AIDS epidemic, of the way in which we, and I use that word carefully, confronted it both successfully and unsuccessfully. What lessons do you think we can most learn from uh, the tragic AIDS chapter in our history, which continues to go on both in the United States and around the world?
1: Thanks for having me on and thanks for the chance to talk about the relationships between these ongoing pandemics. the reason that that um, HIV and the AIDS epidemic are not tragedies, first and foremost, is because of the um, the bravery, uh, the activism, and the insistence of um, people living with HIV and their allies that um, they would not die in silence. They would not die. Um, in stigma. They would not die in shame and they would not die without government action and investment and action and investment on the part of the pharmaceutical con- companies to find effective treatment. And those effective treatments, um, uh, arrived one by one. Um, some of us will remember that. So you have one drug and then two drugs. And then finally in 1996, you have three drugs, a cocktail of antiretroviral medications. Um, and that changes HIV from being, um, a death sentence to being for most people who have it to being a chronic a uh, uh, lifelong condition that you can live a full life with. Um, and those drugs are prohibitively expensive when they are identified. That cocktail is ten dollars to $12,000 a year in the U.S. So there's immediately an access and equity gap that opens up. It opens up in the U.S. between the poor and the wealthy, the insured and the uninsured, and it opens up worldwide between the global north and the global south. What happens then is a concerted anti-capitalist activist movement that says it is not okay to prioritize profits over people's lives. The drug prices come down due to the introduction of generic competition. And in 2003, um, George W. Bush in the st- same state of the union where he um, effectively, you know, makes leaves no doubt at all that we are going to go to war in Iraq. Congress has authorized use of force um, some months prior. Um, announces a major American initiative known as the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief or PEPFAR, $15 billion over five years with a goal of treating 2 million people on antiretrovirals um, in East and Southern Africa, the focal countries um, primarily, where there are only 50,000 people at that point on treatment. Um, Bush and PEPFAR are not the only initiative, the Global Fund predates PEPFAR, but what you have at that moment is Um, a presidential initiative with a target, an audacious budget. It is the biggest, single biggest disease-specific foreign aid intervention in American history and in world history. Okay, the single biggest one. And it sets this target, and that is way back in 2003. It exists to this day. It has sustained sustained support over, um, over now four presidents and nine congresses, as has the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, which is a multi. Multinational-
0: I, I, I get, well, I'm, and we'll come to the to, to the details of, of Bush and PEPFAR later in the conversation, Emily. But let's talk more broadly about the comparisons between COVID and AIDS, because when AIDS um, exploded in in, in in media terms um, in the. 1980s. It wasn't covered in the same way as COVID, was it? And it wasn't treated in the same way as COVID. We think COVID has been politicized, but from the beginning, AIDS was much more radically and um, chillingly politicized. Is that fair?
1: I think we have to, um, you know, comparing and contrasting, um, we're talking, I think, in matters of degrees, COVID led to stigma, it always does. So Asians were stigmatized, people were being attacked, HIV mm-hmm. came with stigma, infectious disease comes with stigma, right? You have fear and stigma and these things emerge. So so is it is it somewhat different in the sense that um, this is a global pandemic, everyone is at risk? Yes, HIV arrives and we're told that it's hemophiliacs, um, heroin users, homosexuals, Haitians, right? So there's four groups that are specifically stigmatized. Many people who are actually at risk do not feel at risk. Women, in particular, are not told that they should be concerned for some time. Um, on the other hand, both viruses very, very quickly reveal the fault lines in society. BIPOC folks are more at risk. Underinsured. These both of these viruses traffic very quickly along fault lines of, of systemic racism and white supremacy.
0: Where are we in the um, Where are we in the uh, the HIV epidemic? I checked. Uh, before we talked um emilyhiv.gov um some people think that hiv and aids is essentially finished in america it's been quote unquote cured is that correct
1: uh, no, it's not over. It's an ongoing pandemic and an ongoing plague. And it is um, most endemic and most entrenched in the same communities that were hardest hit by COVID. So this, again, is a disease that travels along fault lines of inequality, access to health care, trust in the system. So it is not over in America. And crucially, it's not over worldwide. It's not over in any of the countries where PEPFAR and other, um, and other initiatives have really had an impact.
0: Uh, you, you've, you've mentioned PEPFAR. It's the heart of your book, um, the United States President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. Um, it is, I guess, is it would it be fair to say the good guy in your book? I mean, it's not a guy, of course, uh, although it was created by a male American president. Uh, is um, is PEPFAR um, an una- un- unadulterated uh, positive story of America? spreading its scientific wisdom and goodness around the world?
1: I don't see PEPFAR as an unadulterated good, and I also don't see it as a solely American initiative. I think PEPFAR is an example of what um, a government can be impelled to do um, when there's an effective transnational activist uh, movement. And um, what happens when there is bipartisan support, which is really unusual, right? PEPFAR is is launched with Republican and Democratic support of evangelical Christians and queer anarchists um, from Philadelphia and um, South Africans, Brazilians, Thai folks all getting together and saying this needs to happen and we think it can happen. So where there is success, it is the result of a strange bedfellows coalition that insists on funding and targets and impact. Um, I think that COVID itself and COVID in the countries that also have ongoing AIDS epidemics where PEPFAR is investing shows the limits. It shows both the strength and the limitation of a disease specific intervention. So PEPFAR has built health systems. It has treated people with HIV, is continuing to do that as is the Global Fund. And you have raging COVID epidemics in countries where there is lack of vaccine access. There's medical apartheid again, as there was with HIV back when the drugs were available in rich countries and not in poor countries.
0: Uh, You mentioned uh, the unusual, unholy, perhaps, alliances, bedfellows in terms of fighting HIV AIDS. Today, as we know, uh, COVID is really deeply politicized, particularly in America, or maybe not just particularly in America, but in America Uh, the the politicization of of COVID is is self-evident. Here we have a headline from Fox about Tony Fauci becoming one of the bugbearers on the right. blasted for saying that no doubt children three years and older should wear masks. Who knows if he really said that. Uh, Rand Paul, one of the more conservative reactionary members of the American Senate, um, has apparently sent an official criminal referral on Anthony Fauci to the DOJ. Um, Emily, what can we learn from the success? I know it's not an unadulterated success, but the relative success in bringing people of different political and cultural backgrounds together in fighting uh, an epidemic. What can the, today uh, America learn about bringing people who, who normally loathe one another and would refuse to even sit in the same room?
1: So the, the, the best parts of PEPFAR, the most effective parts of PEPFAR are where everybody agreed on the science and everybody agreed on the facts and moved forward together based on what those facts suggested had to be done. I'm talking specifically initially about antiretroviral treatment. So where you have this strange bedfellows um, moment between the Christian conservatives and the, the activists, people living with HIV and their allies, is around the need for everybody with HIV to um, have access to the drugs that will save their lives, that this cannot be a rich poor divide, it cannot be a white black divide. It has to be that everybody has access to these life-saving medications. I think a lot of people think about the evangelical agenda around HIV as having been mostly focused on, say, abstinence or um, you know, kind of proselytizing and and there there was a place and a part of that and it had an enormously damaging impact on the program, right? Um, is where where arguments diverged from science and evidence. But where this program had power, everybody agreed on the science. They trusted the science. They trusted the intervention. And they said with one voice, people need access to this. Right now, what we're seeing is the opposite. Right. right? And, I, and I want
0: to evidence. talk to you a little bit about that, Emily. Um, you're, as I said, a journalist and in a sense, a historian of epidemics because you've been covering AIDS so long. And, and, and your excellent book, To End a Plague, is also... Um, A narrative of your own involvement and your own relationships and trips to Africa and so on. Uh, But things seem to have changed over the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, Next month, I have Lee McIntyre on the show. He has a new book out, How to Talk to a Science Denier, Conversations with Flat Earthers, Climate Deniers and Others Who Defy Reason. Lots of books like that coming out. Um, Is this new? Uh, the idea of science itself as the thing that divides people or a faith in science, a belief in science? Did you have science deniers um, a- around the AIDS epidemic?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, President Thabo Mbeki, uh, and uh, South African president, um, at the beginning of the 21st century, um, and his minister of health, Montu Shabalala Misimeng, both... Um, questioned whether antiretrovirals um, were poison or whether they were effective and whether HIV was the causative agent for AIDS. And the, um, as a result of, of asking those questions and, and seeding those doubts and then failing, using those doubts, um, spurious doubts and spurious um, Scientific questions um, uh, as as the reason to not implement a national AIDS treatment program, to not move with speed um, in the country that was the epicenter of the epidemic. So, and the the modeling um, that's been done since um, since those days, and now South Africa has the largest AIDS treatment program um, in Africa, um, shows that that denialism, that doubt. Um, that departure from the scientific evidence cost hundreds of thousands of lives.
0: There were I, denied- I understand that, but do you think that this science denial that you find, particularly it seems, on, on the right, anti vaxxers and and others, do you think that's relatively new in America, or did it exist? I, I take your point about some of Africa's politicians, but I, I didn't. I don't get the sense, although I, I don't know much about this, certainly compared to you. I don't get the sense that you had an aggressive anti-scientific lobby or anti-science lobby uh, in the AIDS debate in the United States.
1: There were AIDS denialists in the in, in the United States. There were 100 percent AIDS denialists. There were people who, including George Bush, who launched PEPFAR, who suggested that maybe condoms weren't effective, um, who fudged the evidence. I mean, I think that, that we have a long history of ignoring the evidence about you know whether you, it's abstinence um, as, as an effective way to um, keep young people safe and healthy and have positive um, senses of their sexual identity, whether condoms work. And we definitely had HIV denialism here in the US. Um, so I, I don't think that it's an entirely new thing um, at all.
0: You mentioned George W. Bush. You begin your book uh, with him and your ambivalence about him. He's one of the central characters in your book. Um, we had um, very recently one, Cole, the, um, uh, the historian of, of Mohammed and of the Middle East on the show. He argues that George Bush's invasion of Iraq was the worst foreign policy mistake in American history. Uh, the New York Times uh, journalist uh, Robert Draper to start a war his book about uh, American invasion of Iraq pretty much concurs with Draper, and yet I'm not. You're not. You're not here to talk about Bush's general foreign policy in terms of Iraq or Afghanistan. But it seems as if your book suggests that PEPFAR came from Bush, and that Bush emerges out of this uh, in a much more positive light than many gave him um, credibility for in the I- at the time. Is that fair?
1: Bush and his West Wing staff um, researched, kicked the tires on, ideated and launched PEPFAR. And then they did that in the context of an activist movement and a bipartisan Congress that really wanted to see action, which is very similar to what we have right now in America around the desire for a global American COVID response. We have an activist movement, we have bipartisan support in Congress, and we don't yet have the equivalent, um, ambitious audaciously funded plan Right for COVID that we'd like to see um, from, from this White House. But Bush and his team um, bring this to light and they bring it to life. Um, and I think one of the things that's important to to counterbalance, though, is it's absolutely something that they launch. It, it it persists and exists now for 18 years. Um, and that is not a result of Bush, that is a result of all of the other folks who have come in and made it work and sustained it. But it comes to light and life from this administration that was absolutely at the same time that it was really taking care and thought and ambition in in launching essentially a war on AIDS in Africa based on evidence, um, launching us into a disastrous war um, that has changed the course of history um, irrevocably irrevocably for the worse.
0: How would you explain these this this parallel phenomenon of of one extremely wise policy and generous policy and one Catastrophic one is it a just loss of judgment? Is there some sort of morality involved in which Bush manifested it in terms of confronting AIDS in Africa, but didn't when it came to invading Iraq or Afghanistan?
1: I'm not a historian of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, so so I can't I can't fully answer that. I can say that. let, Let me
0: let me rephrase the question then. What can foreign policy experts who have disgraced themselves over the last 20 years on both both progressive and conservative sides. Mostly they were in support of these catastrophic wars. What can we learn from uh, PEPFAR uh, I- I- in terms of rethinking American foreign policy?
1: So PepFAR is an example of American foreign aid that worked. It worked both in the countries where it was deployed and it worked in terms of sustaining support. And I think that the within Congress, right? It gets reauthorized, it gets its budget, um, it continues to exist to this day and it ought to continue into the future. So those are that is a lesson because the the broader foreign aid establishment and endeavor in the United States. Ever since John F. Kennedy launched USAID in 1961, has been subject to a great deal of criticism, ambivalence. Do we do aid in Americans' interest? Do we do it for because we're good people? Um, so it's really an example, and 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 frankly, just a myriad array of boondoggles, right? Projects that you know bridges to nowhere and roads that don't get built and poorly conceptualized, overblown budgets and and overhead. So this is aid that works, and the lesson is if we want to do aid that works in the health space, which we certainly do. We certainly need to. This is not a model to replicate with every element, but to take very seriously in terms of what it proves can be done, which is having impact and sustaining support over the long term.
0: One of the funny things about reading your book, Emily, is that characters who are now very well known in America, Tony Fauci, who I'd never heard of really before the coronavirus crisis, and Deborah Burks, who... Um, who, who was very prominent in the Trump administration and, and, and has come out of, of that experience um, with very bad public relations are central characters. Would it be in your narrative? would it be fair to say that the, the Fauci and particularly Burks Bir- uh, are the heroes of the first American response to HIV/AIDS?
1: My heroes are always the people living with HIV who made it happen. So my heroes are, are named in the book and there are many others, but Lillian Mareko and Yvette Raphael and Richard Lucimbo um, and Sipo Kaze Mtati and countless other people living with HIV who demanded action and who showed that it was possible to take antiretrovirals if you were black and African. Um, those are my heroes. Um, Fauci helped design the program and that was and led the effort to get a, a an ambitious target-driven initiative in place with Dr. Mark Dybel. And Ambassador Brooks, at the end of um, the the post that she left when she became the Coronavirus Task Force Coordinator was leading the PEPFAR program with an enormous target-driven emphasis on achieving epidemic control. And as I talk about in the book, there are pros and cons to the way that that she and the program were tackling epidemic control, Um, but they were trying to end a long-term epidemic. And I think that that is, that is um laudable and is something that kind of drive and desire is something we need we continue to need
0: yeah i, I uh, i'm not an expert on on either burke's or Fauci's um involvement with covid we've had a number of conversations about it but i'm sympathetic to the fact that they've been thrust into the political spotlight uh uh, without training. And, and often it's extremely unfair. And, then, and, and they're criticized both on the left and the right. Um, let's leave America f- for the rest of the conversation, um, Emily, because the subtitle of your book is America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa. Not in America, but in Africa. Uh, talk to me a little bit about um, AIDS and Africa, both historically and today. The numbers are still quite shocking.
1: So I think what we need to talk about is is AIDS today, and what we we haven't yet got a picture of, but what we will be seeing soon. AIDS prior to and HIV prior to COVID, um, we were seeing really dramatic increases, but also unfinished business in getting treatment to everybody who needed it, and we were seeing in East and Southern Africa really um, strong reductions or or large reductions in many groups in the in the um, rates of new HIV diagnosis. So the rates of infection, if you want to get an epidemic under control, you both need to treat people, um, help them help everybody who's at risk and living with a virus, um, stay healthy and stay protected. Um, Uh, Emily,
0: sorry to interrupt, but, but, but why was, uh, in some ways Africa ground zero for AIDS, HIV, whilst it isn't for COVID?
1: Well, I would dispute that. I mean, there's... Well, I, I put
0: those terms carefully, but um, it, it certainly was much more centrally or has been much more centrally in the, the narrative of HIV AIDS than it has in COVID, maybe because we're not reporting it properly. I don't know.
1: So Africa at the moment has a raging out of control COVID epidemic that is that is taking health systems to the brink and beyond. Um, the countries that are central in the in my book, um, Uganda and South Africa are in the midst of criminal COVID surges and I say criminal because there are no vaccines there. So I think it's very, very important to realize that we're actually where the book ends, which is um, COVID has not yet become um, a raging pandemic um, in those countries. Um, at the point that the book ends, that situation has changed. So, COVID is raging in Africa, um, and we need to end the medical apartheid that that has vaccines in some places and not in other places. I want to also just say, in in the interest of sort of correcting and calibrating contrast, that the rates of HIV in some communities in the U.S. today, okay, in communities of color particularly among gay men and other men who have sex with the men are comparable to the rates of HIV in African countries. So what we, what we don't have is really um, accurate narratives or depictions of where this pandemic is. And that is in part because the stories of people who are most impacted by pandemic are often hidden. Okay, you know, they are often marginalized and not told.
0: The numbers I found is uh, on a is that 38 million people are living with HIV globally. don't know their status, in other words, they don't know they're living with it. Is that an accurate number?
1: I think that's an accurate number. I think the the number that I wanted to raise up um, earlier is is that we haven't seen a reduction in the um, global rate of new HIV infections year after year after year. Even as we've accelerated treatment and getting more people on treatment, we have not made a dent in the number of people that are getting infected. And the reason you get infected with HIV, the reason, the things that put you at risk are structural structural factors. Often, um, it's the things that um, that you you know what makes someone have sex without a condom or have sex with multiple partners. Um, sometimes it's pleasure. Sometimes it's desire. It's all of those things. Sometimes it is um, income precarity, housing precarity, um, you know, and climate related you know drought, famine, hunger, and what we're seeing with COVID and with climate um, crisis concurrently are an exacerbation of the factors that put people at risk for HIV. And particularly, I have been lifting up recently when I've been talking to people, adolescent girls and young women. Okay, they've come out of school. There's millions of people out of school, but these young girls and young women are out of school. They're going to be in early partnerships, early marriages, people call them, but partnered with older men because their families can't support them and can't pay for their education. And there's going to be a surge of HIV, a wave of HIV that we have not yet seen that we should be um, taking as much as seriously, right, for our future um, as COVID.
0: And, and, and if there is, how do you think the world will treat it differently from the first wave in a post-COVID world?
1: Well, I think that's a great question, and I think we have to answer it very, very carefully. I think what, what is really concerning um, is the extent to which HIV was, when, when the global response was launched, it was seen as a security threat. Okay, it was, it was seen as if we don't do anything, then there's going to be unchecked um, you know, death of the productive class of teachers, engineers, African societies will collapse, we'll have militias and you know, all hell will break loose, right? It was seen as a security threat. And, and when we respond to something as a threat, we take it very seriously. And when we respond to something as a humanitarian issue, Um, we're doing this because we're good people to show mercy, all of those kinds of things. Attention wanes and it drifts. And what I think we need to be able to do is hold the idea of interconnectedness. All of our security is dependent on, on global health equity, right? And we are all threatened by all pandemics, whether or not it's going to get on a plane and come here, whether or not it's a variant. We are all threatened by, by ongoing pandemics.
0: Emily. Last week, Joe Biden announced that he was going to hold a Summit for Democracy, whatever that means, in December. I think it's going to be virtual, um, in which uh, I guess he will remind the world of America's place and role in spreading democracy and supporting democracy. Uh, We had the Singapore-based writer Kishore Mahbubani on the show. We've had him actually a couple of times. Very controversial writer who... um, Writes mostly about the new, I guess, Cold War or cultural war, or economic war between China and America and how China is becoming more prominent. Um, did China, I guess, China didn't play a role in this first war against AIDS, America's fight to defeat AIDS in Africa? But at this summit in, in December, what, did, what advice would you give Biden and his people? about the role of America, not in global democracy, but in in fighting epidemic. And and, and, and in a sense, for better or worse, reasserting American leadership in the world uh, against a China which is not sympathetic to democracy, but is sympathetic to science and aid.
1: So there's a few things I'd like to see in, in terms of leadership. One is that um, right now, PEPFAR itself um, does not have an appointed leader, doesn't have a presidentially appointed leader, and it hasn't. We're going on eight months. And there's a real concern about that vacuum in leadership. A group of activists published um, a letter in The Lancet yesterday about this. So so in terms of American leadership, it has to start with filling critical positions that are to show that we take seriously our continued commitment, our unfinished business with ongoing pandemics. That's part of it. The next part of it is to really look at what America has been able to do both with a bilateral program and as a contributor to, a contributor to and participate in multilateral engagement. So America rejoined the WHO, that's fantastic, right? We are back to a science-driven agenda and I couldn't be more thrilled about that. But we also have shown that one of the ways that we can mobilize support and maintain support for large investments is by having a target driven bipartisan supported initiative where Congress goes, yeah, we paid for that. We paid for that impact. We helped get across that finish line. And we really we we do this not because we're seeking necessarily um, sort of aid for trade transactions in the same way that China has, not in the same overt way. Right. But we do this um, where successful because there's an impact. We're paying for something and we're saving people's lives and there is congressional support for that. And we are all waiting for Biden to seize the opportunity to do something similar when it comes to global COVID.
0: Well, yesterday we had Laurenetta on the show, a wonderful new book um, about vaping and the role of big tobacco. Earlier in this week, we also had a book about paradise and the role of PG&E and the terrible fires in California. So it's really important and encouraging that we have such uh, wise and dedicated journalists like those two and Emily Bass on the show today to end the plague America's fight to defeat AIDS in Africa may not be the most fashionable subjects right now, uh, but it's enormously relevant both to American history to reassessing the last 25 years of America's role in the world and of course to COVID itself. So. It's a book that needs to be read. It's also very readable and interesting and full of interesting uh, stories about uh, Emily's adventures around the world, particularly in Africa. Uh, Emily, congratulations on the book. A lot of work being put into that. I know you're in Vermont at the moment on a well-deserved vacation in these strange sort of post-COVID, post-COVID days where we're not sure what to do or what COVID even means anymore. What else should people be reading?
1: So um, there's a wonderful book called called Freezer Door by Matilda Bernstein-Sycamore, um, and she likes to say, um, if we can't find the language for something, then we need to invent it. Um, and, and it is an inventive, grief-filled, hope-filled uh, book about living in your body in um, uncertain uh, times within the body and outside. And I think we're all looking for the language to describe what we're living with right now and living through. So... Um, I, I prescribe that as one antidote, um, a book that I haven't read but I can't wait to read is called The Kissing Bug by Daisy Hernandez, um, which is an exploration of um, neglect of a tropical disease that um, primarily affects Latinx families and what that, and communities and what that means. Um, so books about health equity, books about resilience and books about finding the language we need.
0: Well, this is certainly not the first or, or, or the last conversation we have about health equity. Emily Bass, congratulations again on the book, To End a Plague, America's Fight to Defeat AIDS in Africa, just out, must read for anyone who cares either about pandemics, AIDS, COVID, or America's role in the world. Uh, thank you so much. Keep well. And we'll talk again about uh Uh, pandemics, AIDS, COVID, and unfortunately, these other issues that seem to be making the world an increasingly worrying and dark place. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much.